Thank you for the music. Thanks for coming out. Good to see, uh, good to see people. A few extras. That's a good sign. And uh, we're going to continue our discussion today around this theme of prayer as one of the major items that we say we're concerned about at uh, Grace Bible Church. So we've been thinking about this for a few weeks. <clears throat> Here's a definition we have used tentatively to uh, frame our discussion. Prayer is conversation with God through which we experience his transforming friendship and partner with him in the work of his kingdom. So we're begun to look at a few different elements in this. We've looked at the Lord's Prayer for a couple of weeks, uh, the model prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples. Today, I want to look at Mark 9, 14 to 29, around this theme that all things are possible. And that is, uh, that is part of the assumption that goes into prayer for the believer, that all things are possible. And in this story, we'll get some perspectives on that. So follow along as I read. <clears throat> Just prior to this in Luke 9, Jesus has taken three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, gone up into a mountain, and there is that uh, <clears throat> mysterious experience that we call the transfiguration when uh, <clears throat> the heavens are open over Jesus and God declares his love for his son, and Jesus uh, has some kind of experience that uh, gives the disciples an insight into the future uh, and, and what Jesus will be revealed to be in the future. So, now they've come down off the mountain and uh, they're rejoining the other disciples who have been in the midst of a discussion. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. 
Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. <clears throat> All right, uh, there's, there's two basic things that catch my attention here. There's a lot of stuff that could be talked about, but I, I want to focus us uh, first on this statement of Jesus uh, when he hears about the discussion, the debate, I guess, uh, and, and hears that his own disciples are powerless before this demon, he makes this comment. Unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? Unbelieving generation. <clears throat> now, it's, it's not entirely clear who he's talking about. And uh, that means that when things are a little ambiguous, the commentators... Uh, run off into the bushes in different directions. Uh, it seems to me that this is, in fact, a general statement that Jesus makes, not directed to any uh, particular group here. So I'm going to look at, uh, at three possibilities that I, I think are all included in this statement of the unbelieving generation. <clears throat> the first, pretty clearly, is the group that in your version, maybe called the scribes, or in the uh, NIV is called uh, the teachers of the law. Who were these guys? Well, <clears throat> the first uh, scribe or teacher of the law identified in Scripture is Ezra. Back in uh, just at the end of the captivity period when the Jews are starting to return, and Ezra is uh, one of the leaders who comes back, and Ezra is a scribe. <clears throat> Ezra is a, a person who has studied the Scriptures, who, uh, who is an interpreter to the people at uh, large, the Jews that came back. And that starts a tradition that... Uh, is very pronounced in Judaism, and, and by the time Jesus comes, there's a, there's a centuries-old established pattern for this group called the scribes. As the picture suggests, these are folks who were involved in copying the Scriptures. There was no printing presses for, uh, for about uh, 2,000 years after after Ezra. And so if you're going to have copies of the scriptures, it's hand copying. So the scribes were involved with that, but they didn't just copy scripture, they studied it. 
and interpreted it, and then they had responsibility to communicate the meaning of Scripture to everyday people. And, and so they're kind of the, the professional Bible students. And we find them in the New Testament in frequent conversation with Jesus, and it usually doesn't go well. Because their reading of Scripture has no place for him. So here we are, Jesus comes off the mountain, and the scribes are arguing with the disciples. We're not told what the argument is, but we could guess it pretty, pretty well, right? Uh, somebody in the group, in the crowd, maybe even one of them, has this son who is demon-possessed, and they've brought him perhaps out of a good motive or perhaps ulterior motives or maybe some of both. They've brought him to the disciples as a sort of test case. Can you disciples do anything? You are the followers of Jesus of Nazareth who, who some people think is the Messiah and part of what the Messiah does is he brings healing. So what are you going to do here? And uh, they give it a shot and, and nothing happens. But so, so probably the discussion they're having is about the authenticity and power of the disciples, but then indirectly of Jesus as well. These are part of the unbelieving generation. The scribes have no faith at all. And then there's this interesting father of the afflicted boy. What do we make of him? And, and I list him here as, as a man of ambivalent faith. It's not clear, I think he's not clear himself, and the text certainly does not make it clear. What's his statement? Well, he says to Jesus, he explains the situation, and he says, uh, if you can help, have mercy on us. If you can help. We're not told the tone of voice. We're not told what his attitude is. We're just, like a lot of the gospel stories, it's very condensed, and there's some ambiguity. How is he asking this question? We don't know. But Jesus immediately responds to his statement, if you can help, with the statement, if you can, as in, what's that all about? If you can. And of course, goes on to elaborate. Uh, all things are possible for the one who believes. So I'd say the father's faith is ambivalent at best. Does he think that Jesus has the ability to heal his son? Uh, maybe. I suppose he's open to it. What is, what's the key characteristic about him? What's the predominant characteristic? Is he more doubtful than hopeful? Well, the text doesn't tell us. 
His faith is ambivalent. And I think that means he's, he's part of this statement, oh, unbelieving generation. But then here is the uh, interesting one, and the commentators discuss this. Uh, Where are the disciples in this statement? Are they also part of the unbelieving generation? And that's, that's worth reflecting on, especially for you and me, who probably count ourselves among the disciples of Jesus. The disciples are powerless. Why are they powerless? Well, Jesus is going to go on to say, everything is possible for the one who believes. Now, we know that they've had experience with healings and with, uh, with exorcisms prior to this. Mark 3 Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. He gave them the authority to do that. And the implication is, you know, and we find statements elsewhere in the Gospels, they did that. They preached the coming of the kingdom and they demonstrated kingdom power in various healings, and in casting out demons. But now they've encountered this boy, and it ain't working. Why isn't it working? And they have that question too, huh? Because after they leave the crowd and they come indoors, they say to Jesus, "Uh, what's the problem here? Why couldn't we cast out the demon? And he replies, this kind can come out only by prayer. Only by prayer. And the obvious implication is, what? They tried to do it without prayer. What I understand that to mean is that probably these guys had slipped into what I would call a magical understanding of their faith in Jesus. Magical being this idea that we control circumstances or we bring God to focus on things by using the right sort of language, the right sort of incantations, So, they've watched Jesus cast out demons. They may have come to think that uh, the key to that was saying the right words. Somehow, they seem to have missed the fact that Jesus was a man of prayer. Always. And... Now they've tried to cast out a demon who resists them, and Jesus says, well, duh. Sort of, I mean, kind of said that. Uh, Don't you understand? This is a spiritual work, and it has to be bathed in prayer. And that's, 
That's what I forget. Do you? For, for your Christian life in general or for your service to the Lord. You get to the place where, where you're saying to yourself, perhaps unconsciously, but you're saying it nonetheless, I can do this. I, I know how. I, I think that's the scribes. We know how to study the Scripture. We can read Hebrew and understand Hebrew even though most of our countrymen by this time are speaking Aramaic. We can interpret the word for them because we've, been, we've got the training and all the rest. This is, uh, this is a great temptation for seminary students. I, I can tell you because I, I were one, right? Now you have the right techniques. You have the right ministry style. However you do that, the disciples thought that they had the key to unlock the power of God over the demonic realm, and they didn't because they failed to pray. Almost unbelievable until you think about your life and my life and realize how often we are marked by prayerlessness. How often. And in some ways, I guess it's made even worse because we live in such a secular society and such a technique-oriented society uh, that prayer is sometimes the last thing that comes to our mind. We know how to do life, don't we? The unbelieving generation. I can understand what Jesus is talking about and understand how even as a disciple... I so easily slip into that category. Now, the other thing I want to focus on, kind of the key to this whole passage, is this statement of Jesus to the Father that everything is possible. If you can, says the Father, Jesus responds, What do you mean, if you can? Everything's possible for the one who believes. So here is a basic assumption then that undergirds the life of prayer. It is that God is sovereign. And three times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says these same words. Just a chapter after the one that we read... There's a discussion about conversion. How do people enter into the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, well, you know, it's it's tough, especially for rich people, which was a shock to them because rich people were frequently seen as particularly blessed by God. Jesus says, here's the reality. Getting a rich person into the kingdom is like trying to push a camel through, a, through the eye of a needle. And the disciples say, whoa, really? Well, who can be saved then? Jesus responds, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Why? Because God is sovereign. God is the king of creation. 
So what God wants to do, He can accomplish. What God wants to do in your life, He can accomplish. What God does, facing the powers of the enemy, God is able to do. And then Jesus adds to that statement in the text we're looking at it. It's a, it's a, a qualifier, if you will. All things are possible for God, and all things are possible as something we can experience as believers, as those who are convinced that God really is sovereign, that he really has this power, we believe that and we bring our requests to him and for the one who believes everything is possible. Now, the statement that he makes to the man is, once again, it's ambiguous. It invites us to think about what he means. The man says, if you can, Jesus says, what's this if you can stuff? Everything is possible to the one who believes. So the question is, who is the one who believes in this story? Is it, uh, is it the man himself? That seems to be the way the man takes the statement that he's hearing from Jesus. Well, if, if I believe enough, if I have faith, then it's possible that my son can get delivered. The question is, is that what Jesus is saying to him? Or is that the way he's hearing it? Because the question that introduces this, not the question, but the statement, is the man's statement. If you can have mercy on us. Jesus says, if you can, to the one who believes, everything is possible. Is he talking about the man or is he talking about himself? Because that's where the question starts, right? That's the, that's the question behind this whole discussion. Who is Jesus? Is he able to do anything? So you might say in, uh, in an English translation, you've got the option of either lowercase, the one who believes, or uppercase. And it seems to me that that what Jesus is doing here is pointing to himself. Because he is the one who, in Scripture, is par excellence, the one who believes God, who always trusts his Father, And who has the greatest confidence that his father is sovereign and always hears his prayers 
because he trusts in his Father implicitly. Everything is possible. The demon can be cast out of the man's son, not because the father is all that great about faith. I mean, his faith is ambivalent. That's what we saw, right? Yeah, I I believe. Help my unbelief. Who knows where he is? But we know about Jesus. Jesus, the model prayer, the one who teaches us how to pray, is the one who himself lives by faith and never doubts who his Father is and what his Father can do. All things are possible, he says. To the Father, he says it. To his disciples, he says it in the discussion of uh, the possibility of conversion for the rich. But you know, I said there's three places in Mark where the Lord says this. Do you know where the other place is? I'll give you a hint. Mark 14. Jesus in Gethsemane, sweating as it were great drops of blood, says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. I mean, there it is. That's his conviction As he faces the cross, he still believes that all things are possible for you. Wow, look at this prayer. Remove this cup from me. This is the cup of divine wrath and judgment. This is the cross. Take this cup away. Is that possible? Well, look what he says. All things are possible for you. Take this cup away. So here's something we have to add to our understanding of prayer. And this is, uh, this is a real difficulty that we we struggle with as people of prayer. That we believe that all things are possible, but not everything is permitted. Jesus, the man of perfect faith and perfect prayer, asks a request of his Father that he believes is possible. And he is not granted that request. (laughs) 
He's not granted that request. And, And what I want you to notice here is the attitude of his prayer, because this is where This is where I get into the wrong way of thinking, or even the wrong way of praying. Notice what he says. The conclusion takes us right back to Matthew chapter 6 and the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. Pray this way. What do we pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now here he's got it tacked right on the end here. Take this cup from me. That's possible for you, Father, to do, yet not what I will, but what you will. It's the attitude of prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. The attitude that that I slip into easily is, Lord, my kingdom come and my will be done. You're the God of all possibility, and you're the God who loves me, so you you ought to take care of my kingdom. What's the attitude of prayer? The attitude of prayer that Jesus teaches us is one of submission. In the face of the dreadful cup of Calvary, Jesus says, Father, everything is possible for you. And you can do this. You can take the cup away. There's got to be a different road to get to where we want to get to. Nevertheless. Well, there are other reasons that prayer is heard, because it's always heard, but not always answered, or at least not answered in the way we'd like. And we'll have to think about some of those further down the line, but, but here is one striking case. Huh? We got to get away from the notion that if somehow you and I offer the perfect prayer, it's always going to have the result that we want. That's, this story alone sabotages that kind of an understanding of prayer. Prayer is not manipulation. Prayer is not some kind of a guarantee that you get that says what you want is going to happen. All right, folks. Let's summarize here, and then I have uh, one final note to make. Those who experience the fullness of divine possibility are those who believe and ask. Now notice, I I talk about the fullness of divine possibility because there there are times in the Gospels where Jesus does things for people that that don't have faith and have doubts and all the rest. God is not bound by the purity of our faith, but But those who experience the fullness of possibility are those who believe and they ask. And that reminds us then that a life of faith is a life of prayer. 
Or say it the other way around, a life of prayer is a life of faith. Those two go together. And then this. A life of prayer needs to be cultivated. It's a practice. It's a spiritual practice. It's a, uh, in part, it's a skill. I'm uh, about halfway through a book right now by Peter Grieg called How to Pray. It's a very basic book and it's very helpful. Uh, you might want to pick that book up and read it if you find yourself in a place where you're dissatisfied with your own prayer life or where you say, I, I really haven't had much of a prayer life. I want, I want to grow in this area. That might be a book to help you. <clears throat> and I mention it because uh, there's one element that I'm going to uh, connect you with this week in a, an email. Uh, it's, it's a website that is set up to connect with, with Peter Grieg's book. And it has a, a lot of just helpful, practical things about prayer. <clears throat> so the one I'm going to link you to is, is a little paper called uh, How to Have a Quiet Time. A quiet time or a devotional time is a time that you dedicate to reflecting on God's word, God's character, and speaking to God in prayer. Uh, a lot of you already have such a time. Uh, daily is, is the best, but regular is second best. <laughs> So if, if you say, my schedule is just so wild, I, I can't do it every day, I've never had that habit before, well, then think maybe about five days a week. But this is a helpful little how-to guide that gives you actual steps if you want to practice that. And it's pretty realistic. It gives two forms. One is a 10-minute daily quiet time. And it'll have you look at some scripture and uh, think about the nature of prayer and practice prayer and practice a little bit of silence, which is also important. So there's a 10-minute version and there's a 30-minute version. So let's suppose that you're in the audience and you say, you know, I, I really sense that prayer has been lacking and I want to, I want to begin to grow in this area. I'll send you the link to this, and, and you can th think about it, and hopefully more than think about it, if you don't have a regular devotional time, you can actually experiment with what Peter suggests. I will give you this guarantee, and I don't give many guarantees, but I will give you this guarantee. If you will devote yourself to a regular devotional time. If you will do that, it will transform your life. And you can take that to the bank. Although they probably will not recognize it, but you can try. <laughs> But guaranteed, that will change your life. And if you do it 
you will find yourself saying, uh, I am very busy, and where you might have said, I'm too busy for a devotional time, you'll end up saying, I'm too busy not to have such a time in my life. All right, so think about that. The other thing is, I know some of you have engaged for years and years in devotional time, and you've seen the way it has changed you. I'd be very interested in hearing that from you, and, and I think our congregation would too. So I, I would love to have a couple people who say, you know, I, I'd be willing to share that with the group. Uh, so if you're in that situation, please talk to me, and uh, we'd all like to hear those stories, because this, this is essential, friends, for your growth. Remember what we said prayer is? It's part of the way we experience the transforming friendship of God. Let's pray, and uh, then we will go on to the next events. Lord, we desire as individuals and as a congregation to be people that experience the transforming friendship of God. We desire to be filled with the confidence of Jesus that with you, our Father, all things are possible. We desire, God, to bring our lives and our circumstances before you with his deep-seated confidence that you hear us and you will answer us. Lord, uh, would you be at work in us to make us people of prayer? As those early disciples asked him to, to teach them how to pray, so we now ask as well. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray like Jesus with his confidence and with his submission to your will because we ask it in his name and for the sake of his great and coming kingdom. Amen.